You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. On this episode, we're talking about reading in 2021. So we'll talk about our own goals, some books we're looking forward to, and we'll announce the reading challenge categories for 10 to Try 2021. Then I'll chat with Jenny O'Dell, the author of How to Do Nothing. Happy New Year! Yay! Goodbye, 2020. (laughs) Goodbye, 2020. I am not sorry to see you go. Thank you, next. (laughs) So thinking about the new year and reading in 2021, have you set goals for yourself? A goal? I think this year I'm less focused on a number and more on following just that like feeling you get when you read a really good book. And I think sometimes if you go too long without doing it, it'll surprise you when you pick up a great book again. You're like, oh, why have I not been reading? Why did I think this was too hard or not just the thing that I wanted like to nurture my love of reading and not assign myself like homework books? Like, oh, this very important new literary title has emerged. I should read that. I love the idea of sort of chasing your reading bliss in 2021. I am going to set a goal, a number goal for myself, because it's something that's helpful for me to kind of stay on track. But my real goal for the year is to actually finish the reading challenge this year because I did not finish it. I know I did not finish it in 2020. And I think something that happens with me is maybe sort of the opposite of what you're talking about, where I find something that just like, sort of scratches the itch or is like a really great book. And then I just try to chase other things that are like it. So I tend to go on kind of little binges where I'm reading a bunch of the same kind of stuff. And I'm hoping that I can stretch myself just a little bit this year. I'm going to try and read a little bit more nonfiction, which as you may know, is not exactly my jam. (laughs) It's not that I don't like it. It's just that I find it hard to stick with. So I'm going to experiment and see about sort of alternating nonfiction or things that are a little bit more, a little bit more challenging with some of the sort of more plot driven stuff that I just like to sink my teeth into. So as we are talking about a really good book and nurturing your love of reading, do you have any that are on the horizon that you're excited about 2021 titles? Well, I know I just spoke dismissively of very important literary work, but um, I am super excited that we're getting a new Kazuo Ishiguro book. You probably know him from Never Let Me Go, which is a personal favorite of mine or Remains of the Day. Uh, He has a new book called Claire and the Sun, which returns to science fiction, which I'm really excited about because his is a a soft, gentle, tender science fiction that I'm really Mm -hmm. intrigued by. I'm super excited that The Three Body Problem is being adapted for Netflix. And the author of that book has a new book coming out called um, Supernova Roman. And then we're also getting a new um, Becky Chambers book. And I believe we're also getting a new book from Nadia Korafor. So lots of cool things happening in the science fiction genre. Well, that's very surprising coming from you because as we often talk about, you tend to be more of a nonfiction reader. So a couple of my most anticipated picks are actually nonfiction. Uh, So we're swapping it up here. (laughs) 
in April, we're getting the book of difficult fruit from Kate Lebo, who's a Washington state author. And I've had a chance to preview this one. And I I think it's going to be just a wonderful book. It's sort of part cookbook, part memoir. So it's organized as an alphabetical list of difficult fruits, things that are difficult to harvest or to grow or a challenge to cook with. It starts with aronia, which is also known as chokeberry, and it ends with zucchini. And the zucchini chapter is very funny because it's sort of about how you always have too much zucchini. There's no way to have the right amount of zucchini. (laughs) And then each chapter has a beautiful essay from Lebo that's about, you know, it sort of borrows the themes of what makes the fruit a challenge in whatever way it's challenging and draws from her own life. So it has these elements of memoir. And then it also, each chapter also has a couple of recipes. So things that you can do with the fruit, the V chapter is vanilla and uh, the recipe or one of the recipes is about um, creating your own vanilla body lotion. And the essay is this wonderful essay about coming of age at a time when like the cool girls were like wearing Bath and Body Works vanilla lotion, you know, like in middle school. <laughs> Not and cucumber it, melon. <laughs> yes, and cucumber melon was the alternative, right? But it's this wonderful essay about sort of discovering, understanding femininity as you're coming of age, as you're an adolescent, and and what other people's femininity looks like, and trying to, especially in that tender sort of middle school age, fit yourself into that box. So that gives you a, an idea of what the what the essays are like. She was so much fun to talk to. If you're a foodie fan, you should go all the way back to one of our earliest podcast episodes to hear an interview with Kate and also Sam Ligon, the authors of Pie and Whiskey. They were a delight. They were. Um, And then another nonfiction title that I'm excited about, and I think this one may be up your alley too, is Somebody's Daughter by Ashley Ford. She's a writer and she's a podcast host, and I've followed her for a really long time online. She writes these great essays um, about all kinds of stuff. But this is her first book. It's a memoir. It's about her childhood, and it's especially about her relationship with her dad. So as she was growing up, she really idolized her dad. She felt connected to him. She thought like, oh, we really understand each other. But she never actually saw him. And the reason is that he was in prison and she didn't know what he was in prison for. So as a teenager, she understood, she finally learned what had happened that led to him being in prison. And the book sort of explores what happens next when this person that you have idolized your whole life, suddenly you you sort of start to understand that they're not as perfect or as infallible as you maybe thought you were. She's a wonderful writer. She's really smart. She's really vulnerable. And the story is about the complexities of not only this relationship, but just growing up poor and black in America is one I just can't wait to read. So that's Somebody's Daughter by Ashley Ford. I do have a couple of fiction picks too. And these are all from the first half of the year because I didn't want to go too far out. Um, The first one's coming out this month, actually. It's called Outlawed. It's by Anna North who's another person that I know is like a writer from the internet. I think she originally started writing for Jezebel like way back in the early 2000s. Um, but this is a alternate history Western. It's set in the American past, sort of right after what would have been the Civil War and the country has been decimated by a pandemic. So timely. Uh, but that's led to this obsession with babies and with childbearing. So when women get married and then don't get pregnant, they are accused of witchcraft and they can be hung. So that's what happens to the heroine of this novel, Outlawed. She 
gets married, doesn't get pregnant and ends up running away, fleeing her hometown and joining this hole in the wall gang and becoming sort of a Western outlaw. And she all the while is sort of trying to understand what's really going on with her body, like real information about pregnancy and fertility. And it's just such an interesting mashup of like women's health. And there's a lot of interesting gender and sexuality stuff. This gang that she joins is full of, um, queer women and non-binary people. And then there's also these action sequences. So there's like bank robberies and, you know, stagecoach heists. And um, it's just a really fascinating book that circles around this wonderful character named Ada. So that one's outlawed. And then in March, we're getting one. This is definitely in your category of like important uh, literary fiction that I think is going to be heavy, but should be really beautiful. It's called How Beautiful We Were by Mbolo Mbue. It's set in a fictional African country that's dealing with the sort of double terrors of this environmental destruction caused by an American oil company that doesn't face any consequences. So it's this little village is at the center of this story. Um, and there, you know, there's been oil spills, the drinking water is tainted. And then on top of that, the country is run by this very corrupt and tyrannical dictator. And so the people of this village decide to stage a revolution. And it's the book is about particularly this one young woman and this one family who become a revolutionary because of this situation that they're facing. So Mbue is the author of Behold the Dreamers. So it came out in a few years ago and it's about, it was one of the first novels about the 2008, 2009 financial collapse. So it followed two families, a family from Cameroon living in New York city. And then the the husband in that family was a driver for a really wealthy family who was the father was a banker. The husband was a banker. So he was right in the middle of this whole financial crisis. And I really enjoyed that one. It was really sharply observed and had great characters, especially the female characters are sort of these complex, um, flawed women. So I'm really excited to see uh, how this one comes out and that. Um, how beautiful we were. And then, like you said, there's just so many other great things coming. We're getting a new one from Sarah Moss, who's an author of one of my favorites. Her new book is called Summer Water. Uh, Sarah Gailey, who was on the show last year, has a new one called The Echo Wife um, that they talked about when they chatted with us. Viet Ten Nguyen has a new one called The Committed. There's a new collection of Joan Didion essays coming out. And Casey McQuiston, who wrote Red, White, and Royal Blue, has a time travel subway queer romance called the one last stop that one's coming in june so i'm super excited for that too this is the time of year when i always feel so um like optimistic and ambitious about all the reading that i'm going to get done i was looking back at the list of things we talked about last year and like i did not read a lot of the things that i said i was excited about even though i was excited about them but uh just like that just like last year this year there's so many things coming out that i just can't wait to get my hands on so we'll see which one of them say which which ones of them i actually read i don't know i love that because it means that you discovered so many other things along the way because i read like exactly what i said i was going to read and not very much else it's like I got a plan, and this year that Joan Didion collection's totally on it. Yes, I really love her, uh, and I think that collection will be interesting because my understanding is that it's some older pieces as well as some new things. Well, should we talk about the categories for the reading challenge next year? Yeah, give them to me. All right. So 
I will say a lot of these were picked with our 2020 experiences in mind, including the first one, which is read a book that makes you laugh. Thank goodness. <laughs> and then we have read a book with non-human characters. So basically, I'm thinking that anything with characters who are part of the story and are not humans counts. So um, obviously, if you're reading fantasy and you've got like dragons or elves or trolls or whatever you know, wizards, mages, that would count if you're reading science fiction and you've got aliens or AIs, the new Ishiguro book would probably count for this category, robots that interact with the story in a significant way. But I'm also thinking of things like memoirs where animals play a significant role. So there are lots of these kinds of memoirs that are like you know, I adopted, there's, there's one about a donkey, like I adopted this donkey. And here's what it was like when I was training the donkey for the donkey races. Um, I think that book's called Running with Sherman. But there's lots of memoirs where a, a person's relationship with an animal is really at the heart of the story. And I think in those the animal counts as a character, even if they're not speaking in the same way that we often think a character needs to. After non human characters, we have about the future. So that can be fiction, science fiction, or uh, could be nonfiction as well. The next one is epistolary novel, which I both mostly choose because I love that there's a word for this, which is a novel that's told through letters, epistolary. Uh, it's just a fun word. And again, this is one where I encourage people to interpret it broadly. So maybe part of the story is told through letters. It doesn't necessarily have to be the whole story. Or maybe it's not letters, but it's emails or it's text messages or some other kind of communication. Even a diary, I think a, a story that's told as a diary or a journal would count for this one. So interpret broadly. And we will, of course, have lists on the website for all of these categories. And you can always use Bookmatch, our online recommendation service, or to find books for these categories as well. Some of them are, are trickier than others. And I think epistolary novel is one of the trickier ones. What are some examples of your favorite epistolary novels? So the one that first comes to mind for me is Where'd You Go, Bernadette, uh, which is told in emails and other found communications. It's not a straight epistolary novel. I think the one that I'm going to read for this one is Attachments by Rainbow Rowell, who's an author that I love and haven't read in a couple of years. And I haven't ever read Attachments. It's one of her first novels, but it's told entirely in emails. Um, so I think that one will be fun. The other one that I'm thinking about reading for this category this year is... Um, on Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong, which is a series of letters from the main character to his mother uh, that got really great reviews when it came out. And I just haven't had a chance to get to it yet. So I'm, I might try and squeeze it in for this category. What are some of the other ones? So the next one is by a Black author. And this one is fun because there are just so many. So we will have a list on the website that's just sort of a general, here's 25 titles by Black authors that we recommend. But I'm also planning throughout the year to make some more targeted lists. So here's romance by Black authors, and here's memoirs by Black authors, and here's sci-fi and fantasy by Black authors, and here are books about race by Black authors, and here are, you know, 
something totally different, you know, kids books or picture books or graphic novels. This is sort of a gimme category in that there are a lot, a lot of things to choose from. So I think readers will be able to choose something that really appeals to them. But on the other hand, we keep hearing, and and this is very true, you know, when all of the Black Lives Matter protests were going on this year, a lot of my book related social media was saying, hey, this is true in the publishing world too. Like we still are, Black writers are underrepresented, they're underpaid, there aren't very many Black people working in publishing. So on one hand, there's a lot to choose from in this category. And on the other hand, it's still something that you kind of have to seek out, Uh, you know, considering how how large the Black population is in America, it's not really represented in, in publishing yet. So we'll have lots and lots of lists for this one for readers to choose from. Uh, the next category is published this year, which again is kind of a gimme, but I think um, it'll be a little bit more of a challenge than people might think just because the big bestsellers of the year often have long waiting lists. And so it can be a little bit trickier to hunt down um, something that's available that was published this year if you're reading your books from the library. Um, so I'll be making some lists that highlight um, mid-list titles or debuts by authors who are less well-known so that people can find things that are new in 2021, but don't necessarily have the waiting list of like a, you know, a, a big bestseller from a favorite author. So the next category, I think, is sort of one for you, which is read a book about pop culture. But do you have any favorites about pop culture that you'd recommend to listeners? Oh, so many. Um, I I feel like you might understand this because you also love pop culture happy hour. But sometimes I am just as happy listening to people talk about media as I am consuming media. Or like, if I don't want to watch a TV series, (laughs) listening to other people sort of like analyze it and interpret it and talk about it fills that void like just as much. And I feel like there are some really great authors who critique television specifically. I'm thinking about I Like to Watch, uh, which is by Emily Nussbaum, who writes for The New Yorker. And what I love about her is how much she loves television. I mean, we can talk about the golden age and, you know, prestige television, but she loves all of it from like adventure time to the Sopranos and has some really smart things to say about, you know, critical darlings like true detective. Um, so her essays are a really fun look at sort of TV and its place in popular culture and sort of not even elevating it, but just, acknowledging that it's this collective experience and this art form that like any art form can be very good, very bad and everything in between. And then maybe my favorite pop culture writer is Gia Tolentino at The New Yorker. She has a collection called uh, Trick Mirror. Gia Tolentino is probably best known as being very online and writing a lot about the internet and sort of how that shapes us. Uh, She has this great essay in The Yorker about Instagram face and sort of the new cultural beauty standards that have emerged. And she writes quite a bit, I want to say, about self-optimization in this internet age and everything she has to say about like, you know, TikTok or emerging trends. I just, I love her take. And I think she's really clever and smart and like, never lets herself off the hook for the way that she's a part of the things that she's critiquing and she doesn't offer a lot of easy answers. Uh, but she always just has this really great lens with which to view pop culture. So highly recommend. 
so the next category is reread an old favorite. When I talk to people about what they were reading in 2020, a lot of variations on comfort reads came up. And some people, a couple of different people said, all I'm doing is rereading things that I already know I'm going to love. Uh, and I thought, gosh, I, I almost never reread things anymore. Um, so I'm excited to have this category. And there are so many choices. <laughs> like this one is almost a little overwhelming because I'm not sure how far back I want to go. Like, do I want to choose something from childhood or from a few years ago? You know, there are definitely things that when I read them, I put them down and was like, oh, I can't wait can't wait to read that again. And then I've never read it again. So I'm, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to, what I'm going to pick for this one. And the next one is one that I haven't quite figured out how to make lists for yet, because the category is read a book that's set where you were born. So it's hard to make that many lists because of course, people who live in King County have, were born all over the world, actually. So uh, this one's going to maybe require a little detective work on the part of patrons, or like I said, um, using Bookmatch, and then you can have a librarian do a little uh, detective work for you. And then the last category is one that we do every year, and that is recommended by staff. So just by listening to this very podcast, you are getting lots of staff recommendations, but we also have staff picks on the website. And if you do Bookmatch, um, so lots of choices, lots of ways to get staff recommendations. Um, and we do that one every year because I want to remind people that like connecting with the library is not just about going and picking up your holds, although certainly we are happy to give you your book. But we're here to help you discover new titles too. So those are the categories for the challenge this year. Um, and then there are a couple of ways to keep track of what you're reading. We will have bookmarks again. And probably the best way to get a bookmark, if you want a physical bookmark, is to request it in my Libro, which is the app we use for our curbside pickup. You can also log online, which is what I'm going to do this year. Um, so if you go to KCLS org slash tend to try, you'll find a link to Beanstack, which is our online reading platform. And you can sign up for the 2021 challenge there. You earn a little badge for every category that you finish. And people have asked for this feature and we now offer it. So if you read something and then you decide you actually want to use it for one of the other categories, you can edit your uh, entries for the different categories this year. So people hopefully will be excited about that. I know I am because I spend all year sort of shuffling things around, um, depending on what I discover and decide I want to read. This year, we are not doing finisher buttons um, because sort of managing those in a situation where we don't have easy access uh, in our libraries is pretty challenging, but we are going to do the book stacks for winners again. So you can, when you finish the challenge, you can either send a picture of your bookmark to tend to try at kcls.org, or if you're logging online, it'll be automatically entered. And we'll do a grand prize drawing for a couple of winners to get a stack of books for you to keep that will be chosen for you by a librarian, uh, which is a pretty fun thing. And all of these details, as well as all of the lists that I mentioned and ongoing lists throughout the year, you can find on the Tend to Try page on our website. So it's kcls.org slash the numeral 1010 and then the words to try. And then we also will have a newsletter. And again, if you sign up through Beanstack through the online reading platform, you'll be automatically subscribed to the newsletter. It comes out quarterly. It's just a little reminder like, hey, you signed up to do this challenge. Here's some new book lists that we've created. Don't forget to log your reading. We hope it's going well. 
Um, and then if we have like author events or other programs that are relevant, you can learn about those there as well. Yeah. And if you love listening to the desk set, you probably enjoy author interviews and we will have even more fun online events for you to enjoy this year. And you can go to caseyless.org backslash author voices to see the calendar. So we hope you all keep listening and we hope you all join us for some online events as well. Jenny O'Dell. I'm an artist and author. Um, I teach studio art at Stanford. Um, and I am the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, which is about a number of things, but is uh, mainly about uh, divesting your attention from the attention economy and reinvesting it elsewhere. Um, and one of my big examples is in the local ecological community that you exist in. So after reading the book, it becomes clear that the nothing you describe is actually composed of a lot of something. Could you describe what doing nothing means to you? Sure. Um, I think it's pretty simple, actually. It's just sort of non-goal-oriented activity. Um, so I think the way that we tend to, to think about productivity is pretty narrow. Um, it usually involves having something to show for your time, some kind of results. Um, often through a process that can be optimized. Um, the idea being that you want to sort of get more for less all the, all of the time. Um, and so the things that I sort of put in the category of doing nothing appear valueless from that point of view. So things like going for a walk uh, versus walking somewhere um, and trying to get there, you know, as fast as possible, um, spending time with friends, um, simply observing something, uh, you know, these are meaningful experiences, but they're hard to, um, like measure, um, the, the quote unquote value of, cause the value doesn't really appear in that, that traditional productivity framework. So we're recording this during the first week of January when lots of people are going to be encountering lots of messages about self-optimization and setting goals. Can you make a case for doing more nothing in the new year? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I'm actually really glad you asked that because I, I hadn't quite thought about this in the context of new year's resolutions, but, uh, you know, and I don't think there's anything wrong with the, the sort of <laughs> the idea behind new year's resolutions and like wanting to be a better person, totally understandable impulse, but, um, it very easily spills over like so many other self-improvement projects into a kind of, um, you know, punitive self-measurement, like, uh, I'll never be the person I, I want to be, or, um, you know, I'm not working enough. I'm not producing enough. Um, and I think that there's a real risk, um, when you get caught in these kinds of cycles that you don't give yourself the time and space to step back and ask, um, you know, whether, you know, whether that's a path worth pursuing and, and whether maybe what you have or, and what you are, aren't simply enough already and are things that should just be appreciated. Um, and so, you know, one of the reasons I find, you know, quote unquote, doing nothing to be so important is that it's, that's the time in which I appreciate 
you know, the simple fact of being alive or, you know, I appreciate the things that I have. Um, and so I kind of like, instead of the idea of new year's resolution, I, I like the idea of taking, you know, the new year as a moment in which to just reflect on, um, what you already appreciate. Um, and, and maybe also maybe to just kind of ask higher order questions like, you know, um, do I need to, uh, you know, how am I, how, how do I value myself? How do I value my work? Um, how do I value my time? Um, and kind of get way more general about it rather than like, you know, I need to do X amount of something per day. Like one of my worries when I published the book was, you know, related to what we're talking about is that it was just going to kind of get picked up and reinterpreted as like a life hack. Um, and I think it comes down to the difference between, and I don't think this is a, an easy line to draw a lot of the time, uh, the difference between getting more comfortable in capitalism or, or genuinely trying to think outside of it while acknowledging that you live in it. Um, and which is really, really difficult, I think. And that's sort of a, just an ongoing effort and tension. Um, so the life hack version of do, of doing nothing it would be, um, you know, not all that dissimilar from, uh, you know, some of the more meeting, meaningless meditation apps, which is, um, if you do, if you do X amount of nothing, um, you will be healthier, happier, and, uh, a, able to work better, right? Like you'll, you'll be more comfortable. You will be treading water more comfortably, <laughs> um, and the, but the, but kind of what I was going for was the more, it was the sort of broader, um, doing nothing as a sort of pause in which you reflect on what productivity means. So like productive of what, um, for whom and why. And I think that those questions are the beginning, um, of an inquiry that can go in an anti-capitalist direction, sort of in a, I hope a genuine way. Um, and, and I think would, would ultimately lead you outside the bounds of the self that self-help caters to. So if you, if you really go down that path, I think you pretty quickly end up at, you know, the reality that if more people were in order for more people to be able to do more, nothing, for example, you would need things like workplace organizing. Um, you would need to like question the, the sort of profit structure of social media companies, like th these things that are kind of um, beyond the level of the individual. So it's kind of like, it's complicated because it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm writing the book to an individual and I'm trying to write to them about directing their individual attention. Um, but it's sort of with, with this goal in mind of maybe beginning to kind of eat away at the edges of this way of thinking that otherwise has become very habitual. And then the more habitual it becomes, the more hidden it is. It's clear from reading the book that you're not someone who's anti-technology as a blanket statement, but you do want to make readers aware of the mechanics of the technology and tools that we use and how they keep our attention. Could you talk a little bit about some of those persuasive design choices? Sure. Yeah, actually, you know, maybe as an example, I would just mention um, a, a master's thesis that I uh, quote from in my book, 
um, by uh, Devanji Vivrakar, who was at Stanford when she wrote it. Um, and it's it's amazing because it's just the sort of eagle-eyed look at um, several different social media platforms. One of them was LinkedIn that they looked at. And it just kind of goes through and it catalogs every single aspect of um, what is called persuasive design. So, you know, everything from the little um, red bubble that pops up, you know, or um, these messages that you get that are sort of trying to get you to engage more, um, various like levels, you know, things that get unlocked, um, you know, the gamification of, of a lot of these activities. And I think it's just a really fascinating exercise in observation. Um, and I've always been interested in observation, but I think it's especially interesting when you're trying to observe something that is set up to prevent you from observing it. <laughs> it's, it's trying to naturalize itself. Um, and so, uh, you know, just today I figured out this, uh, I was Googling and I figured out a way to hide, um, what's trending on Twitter, which has plagued me for years. Um, because you, you know, there, there was, there is no option within Twitter to make that go away. And that's an example of something, you know, maybe you sign in, you just kind of want to see what people are talking about and you're presented with these, you know, often, um, sort of attention grabbing headlines that, um, then you're quite quickly sucked into auto playing video. I would think I would say is another example of that. So there are all these kind of um, technical decisions and design decisions um, around trying to get a user to not only spend a maximum amount of time on a platform, but to, to sort of engage fully to use all of the features um, to really get like quite embroiled in it. Um, and that's, you know, quite simply, there's a financial incentive for them to do that. For people who are interested in being informed and aware of what's going on in the world around them, often, you know, we turn to social media to get that sort of news and information. How do you personally strike a balance between setting boundaries and limits with your technology use and that desire to sort of know what's going on? Yeah, that's a very, you know, difficult line to toe, I think for, for anyone, um, I mean, assuming you do, you know, you do want to stay engaged. Um, I, my sort of the way that I've worked that out in my head is at some point, I think I realized that, um, the type of engagement that these platforms are optimized for. So things like doom scrolling, um, but also posting, you know, um, and then being sort of in that world all the time, even when you're not really in the app, you're sort of, your mind is still there. But, um, I, that wasn't effective, um, for me or for any of the causes that I'm interested in. Um, like I, that is, that is not a useful version of me. That's just a freaked out, um, you know, kind of internet addled version of me, um, that may be, you know, sort of hyper informed on one level, but it's also like completely lacking perspective and the ability to, to reflect and respond meaningfully, not to mention just the issue of mental health. Um, and so I think that became clear to me that that was just sort of not as guilty as one might feel stepping away, um, from say like Twitter, um, if they're very used to being there a lot and, and using that as their space of engagement, um, it's not like you're stepping away from that and then there's nothing else, right? There are other, there are other forms of, um, communication, other sources of information, um, that you can then go and seek in the absence of that state of mind. But I think intentionality is a really big piece of it for me, rather than kind of being washed over with information 
about different things sort of in an order that I didn't choose. And then it's keeping me in this state of kind of paralysis, um, which again, is not useful for anyone. In the past year, many of us have been encouraged to use technology to stay connected with our community, but also to go outside more, to do outdoor activities as a kind of safer option. I'm curious, has your relationship to both changed at all during the pandemic? Yeah. um, Well, so I... (laughs) I actually, so I'm very fortunate to, to live somewhere where, you know, I have a walkable neighborhood. Um, and I actually have been going to, to actual like regional parks less because they got really crowded. Um, you know, in the Bay area, it's already, you know, I think people are pretty outdoorsy here. Um, and that only increased. Um, and so it's been this sort of, um, strange process of, I feel like I keep going through these cycles of getting bored with my neighborhood and then getting re-enchanted with it um, where it's like, I, I have only really like five or six walks I can go on. Um, and, and I, my whole book and my whole sort of artistic practice is about sort of teaching yourself to notice new things. And so you'd think I would be good at that. And, and I think I am, but it has a limit, right? It's been, you know, I've been doing this since March. Um, but, but then I, I'm always surprised. Um, like yesterday I went on a walk that I've been on. I don't even want to know how many times I've been on this walk. And I, but I went in the opposite direction and it was completely different. Um, I mean, and I, I forget that, right? Like when you're walking in a certain direction, you don't suddenly stop and turn around and look in the opposite direction. Um, but it was just like this really like humbling experience where, and, and I, I find that when that thing, little things like that happen, when you get surprised, it sort of renders you more open to surprise for the rest of the day, in my experience. So then, then you start realizing that there are all these things you haven't noticed and you start noticing them. For someone who hasn't read the book, could you explain what bird noticing is and some memorable experiences with that? There's so many things you have to be aware of, right? When you're like looking at or looking for birds. So I just call it bird noticing. But that's also kind of a gesture towards the fact that for much of my life, I you know, I'm sure I was sort of generally aware of birds, but um, certainly did not know what most of them were. There are these uncanny moments where I think about how there was a bird that I must have been looking at and just didn't know what it was. And now I know what it was. And so it's sort of like you're looking at your memory and from the from the present, um, knowing what it is, what it was now but also that you didn't know what it was then, um, which I think happens to anyone, right? Who learns how to kind of see or interpret any layer of reality. Probably the most memorable example, you know, which is in the book is the crows that I um, befriended on my street um, after learning that crows recognize human faces um, and will favor or disfavor human, different humans based on their behavior. Um, so, you know, if anyone who's listening to this has ever had like a dog that you know, was mean to crows. Uh, they may know that those crows will not forget that. And there's not a lot of ways around that. Um, so I started, you know, putting a peanut out on the balcony, like here and there and in 2016, um, and a couple of crows started coming by reliably and they, that crow family still comes here every day. I saw them this morning. Um, it's been really important for me during quarantine because, um, you know, they're, their friends that can visit. Um, and also there's something really kind of therapeutic about watching them arrive from somewhere else and then watching them leave. 
to somewhere else. And I, I don't know where that is. And I don't know what they do the rest of the day. Um, but in the book, you know, I sort of describe these moments, um, especially post-election 2016 of looking at the crows, looking at me, knowing that at this point they recognize me, um, and kind of trying to imagine how I appear to them, which of course is impossible. Um, but knowing that, you know, being an animal that's being observed by another animal and then, and then looking out onto the street and trying to imagine how they see the street and how they see the hill. Um, and I find that that's just such, such a, um, a reliable way of breaking outside of this very sort of myopic cycle of, um, you know, not just, uh, social media fueled anxiety, but even just the sort of claustrophobic sense of self and, and human time skills. During the pandemic, a lot of us have been spending more time with our own company, not moving through the world in quite the same way. And for safety reasons, maybe being just more planful about how we go about things. Something as simple as you know the act of, of feeding yourself, the difference between going to the farmer's market and picking up seasonal produce and smelling it and talking to people and just having a leisurely time, how different that feels from like, I've made a list. I've meal prep planned for the week. I've got a plan. I'm going to be in and out in 15 minutes. How do you nurture spontaneity and surprise at a time when it feels like those things are are more difficult? Oh, absolutely. I am totally with you on the farmer's market thing. Like I just, I loved, I would go every Saturday and I would just, I mean, I would get stuff, but I would also just I really like looking at just all the weird shapes, <laughs> like mm-hmm. just like a really weird long squash or something. I just, um, and there's something so nice, right. About, you know, talking to the, the people at the stands and, and like feeling this connection through this food. And yeah, of course, you know, we, our farmer's market is still going, but I, I'm sort of too freaked out to, to go into it. So, um, I'm very lucky. We, we have a workaround, which is that, um, the farmer's market that we live near has a, has a, basically the equivalent of a CSA box that you can go pick up every week. And so it's basically like (laughs) all of the interest and surprise of wandering the market is just contained in this box because I don't know what's in the box. So every week it's like this big deal for me to open the box and see like what is inside. Um, And, you know, there's, I I feel like it was probably around August or September. I started hearing from and talking to, um, a lot more friends about this desperate need for novelty. Um, Mm -hmm. as just, a just a sense that time is passing. And that is why that box is so important to me. It's like (laughs) this past week for the button to order, it was like temporarily grayed out. And I was like, no, I need this box of produce. Like this is the only surprise in my life right now. Um, and, and then it's cool to like, you know, you find out what's in there and then you're like, oh, I can make, you know, these different recipes or whatever. But that's just an example of something that's like, you know, it's pretty small and quotidian, but it, but it is, it's a, it's a source of surprise. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult, but worthwhile to kind of like, just try to find those things where you can, while acknowledging that it's very difficult. As a teacher, what are some of the practices you guide your students through? So I have given my students assignments. I don't know if this is really assignment. Um, I've had them do things like, well, when we were on campus, I would have them go outside uh, for 15 minutes and uh, just observe 
everything going on around them and then sort of write it down in a, um, almost like a police blotter way, right? Like a guy with blue shorts is walking across the quad or something like that. Um, and just kind of do that for 15 minutes. Um, and that's based on a, a text by George Perec, uh, where he did that in a, a place in Paris. He went on several different occasions and just wrote down everything that happened. And so it's sort of like an exercise in attention. Um, and then we talk about um, not only what they noticed, but why they think they noticed those things. And so it's kind of like a um, an exercise around not just observing, but then reflecting on like, you know, why, why do I notice the things that I notice? Uh, and maybe like, what am I not noticing? Um, so that's something that we've done. Um, I used to teach a class about cell phone photography many years ago. And one of the things that I would have them do is, uh, for a weekend, I would have my students not take photos on their phones or, or try not to and draw a picture on a post-it of everything that they had wanted to take a photo of. Um, and it was always really entertaining because they would all put them up on the wall and they would always be these like really sort of amazingly trivial things um, that they feel sort of embarrassed writing out. Um, so these are just, you know, kind of exercises again and sort of noticing you're noticing or just kind of stepping back from a habitual activity. Um, I haven't really noticed any resistance to that. Um, if anything, it seems like it's usually welcome. Um, and I mean, the biggest thing I've noticed is that my students are just far, far more po politically aware and active than when I started teaching. Um, and so maybe for that reason too, they're sort of welcoming and open-minded in terms of, um, the idea of stepping outside of, uh, the hamster wheel. I think it really appeals to them, um, because they're hyper aware of the situation that they're in. Um, and, uh, you know, the productivity culture at a place like Stanford. Um, and I think they're, they're thinking about that even while they're kind of caught up in it. So I, I've been grateful for how open-minded they are. And, you know, my, my book is dedicated to them. So. And we always like to ask, what are you reading right now? So I am reading two things at the same time. Um, I'm reading Reality is Not What It Seems by Carlo Rovelli. Um, and it's about quantum gravity. Um, but it's written for someone who knows nothing about physics. Um, and I'm almost done with it. I'm really, really enjoying it. And I it's probably clear from my book, but I I really sort of crave uh writing and art and experiences that make the world feel strange like through and through um and this is definitely a book that will do that um and then i'm also reading h is for hawk by helen mcdonald um classic bird book um really really beautiful <laughs> and i think just like a really amazing example of nonfiction writing it's like incredibly poetic and and the way it's composed is just really inspiring and where can listeners find you online when you are online? <laughs> um, I guess Twitter. I mean, I'm also on Instagram, but I, I don't really try not to spend a lot of time there and I'm not, not very, not super active. Um, but I am on Twitter. Um, and I also have a website, which is just my name, JennyOdell.com. That has like, you know, my art projects and things like that on it. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise, thank you. 
Thanks for listening. You can find all the books mentioned in today's episodes in our show notes. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Happy New Year and happy reading.